0: Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. When President Biden came out with his COVID recovery stimulus bill, there were two main points of controversy. The first was the size of it, with the Republicans wanting to cut it in half. The second, and seemingly a main sticking point because it also concerned an important swing vote Democrat in Senator Joe Manchin, was a gradual hike in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The received wisdom, echoed by the Congressional Budget Office, has been that though it will help many Americans, it would also cost more people their jobs. But is that true? Reports from politicians and policy institutes are usually colored by a specific viewpoint going in, which has made the work of Aaron Dubey something unique in the field because it's been based mainly on research done at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where he's become the world's leading authority on how a minimum wage will affect the economy. So let me start by thanking you for being here.
2: It's great to be here.
1: And I should start out by saying, like many of us, you did work for minimum wage, in your case, at McDonald's. that give you any special feeling for this, or it's just, just another memory from your youth?
2: You know, it's a few a couple of interesting things. You know, of course back then, this was late ninety, late eighties, <laughs> early nineties, um, it was actually more common for people in high school or early college to work in minimum wage jobs. It's become less common these days. In fact, nowadays a lot more workers who are at minimum wage jobs are older and they're going to be there for a longer period. Having said that. Yes, working at a minimum wage job alongside people who were older, who were trying to support families, did give me some perspective.
1: So let's, let's take a look at that Congressional Budget Office report that's been much discussed in the last week, because it says it will raise 900,000 people out of poverty. That sounds great. But it says it will do that at the cost of 1.4 million jobs. I know you think that's not right. What's wrong with that?
2: Yeah, so let me just begin by saying sometimes top line numbers can sound scary and big or small, but it's really useful to keep things in perspective. So according to the CBO, you're going to see wage increases that are far larger than any job losses. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. So overall, if you take the CBO's estimates seriously, it suggests that working people as a whole are substantially better off than uh, with the higher minimum wage than not. Having said that, I do think that the CBO's estimates are more pessimistic, and here's a reason why. I actually was asked by the government in UK, the Conservative government in UK, about a little over a year and a half ago to look exactly at this question, and I provided a report for their treasury that helped them come to a determination on where to set their minimum wage and looked at the evidence. And I found that when looking at the evidence from US, UK, other developed countries, overall the body of research suggests a fairly muted effect of minimum wages on jobs while significantly increasing earnings at the, low, at the bottom. So I think the CBO's report ends up drawing a more pessimistic conclusion because it ends up not looking at some of the more recent literature It also ends up uh, paying more attention to a few very large uh, estimates of job losses. One, for example, from a study um, about Seattle minimum wage that subsequently has been shown to be quite problematic. In fact, the same researchers have a more updated study that suggests one-tenth of the size of job loss as their original report but that more recent estimate is not in the CBO report while the original one is so for these reasons I think the CBO report ends up getting the job loss number fairly you know substantially uh, too high having said that I think it's important to keep in mind nonetheless the report can be interpreted as a saying that this is overall a good policy for working Americans
1: I would think they would be not that much of an effect on, say, chain fast food joints, because they would all be paying more, much as there is little effect when the price of meat or buns go up and they raise their prices. But I'm hearing a lot of complaints from mom and pop businesses trying to compete who, you know, don't open up with the name recognition of a McDonald's or a Chipotle, you know, where you open up your franchise and there's a line out the door the first day. And a lot of them say that this could be a matter of survival. Is there any research into that.
2: Yeah. So I think one of the things that a lot of small business owners don't fully appreciate, um, again, for good reason, uh, is that when the minimum wage rises, it's not just the fact that their wages are rising and their competitors' wages are not. So there's a lot of research showing that small businesses and all businesses are able to raise prices somewhat because all their competitors are actually on the same boat. So what it means is that middle and higher income consumers end up paying a bit more, like 50 cents more on a burger. uh, And that ends up helping raise wages at the bottom. I think a lot of intuition for how you deal with a cost increase in terms of being able to pass that on to prices for business folk come from something that happens idiosyncratically, like they have to do it, other people don't. But in this case, this is actually affecting the entire market, and that's why in Study after study, you see a large amount of pass through, which is an important margin of adjustment for businesses small and large alike.
1: So I mentioned Senator Manchin at the top, and he seemed to indicate that he could go for maybe $11 an hour. Another suggestion, if you could figure a way to do this, would be a minimum wage somehow tied to prevailing wages or cost of living in a particular region. $15 an hour might be starvation wages in New York or Los Angeles, but $11 in a small Alabama or Wyoming town where the rents are far cheaper might be a living wage. Um, How would $11 do and is there any way to even do something that could be regionally adjusted?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there are different ways of thinking about how to set up a minimum wage policy in, in the U.S. One thing to keep in mind is that we actually already have a system where minimum wages vary by area. We have 30 states that have minimums above the federal 725. We have over 40 major cities that have minimums as well that exceed uh, their state minimums. So what we have is essentially the federal minimum wage setting a floor nationally. For those 20 states where basically we have never seen a state minimum wage in those places, typically in the southern states, more uh, Republican leaning areas, not because their voters don't like it, because every time a minimum wage is on the ballot, including in purple or red states, it passes, passes handily. But there is reluctance on part of the legislatures and governors in some red states to actually do that. So this federal standard really should be thought of as something that other states and even localities can build off of that. $15 by 2025, by the way, would be something more like $12.75 in today's dollars. So $11 is not that far off.
1: Well, that brings up an interesting point. That brings up the Costco thing, which is brought up a lot when we talk about this. Some major retailers are now actually fine with raising the minimum wage based on what happened to Costco, which found that it was actually better for them, cheaper for them to pay more to get employee retention because it lowered training costs because of lower turnover and also brought more experienced people into management positions, and then people stayed with the company because they started getting invested, you know, eventually in a health plan, uh, maybe, you know, a 401k or something, and that they actually saved by paying a bit more.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, in what we have found in our research is roughly 20 cents on the dollar, maybe a cost increase from a minimum wage increase actually is you get back through reduced turnover and, uh, and other margins. It's not to say that makes it somehow um, you know silly for employers not to raise the wage voluntarily, though in some cases, they actually could do better. <laughs> um, what it does mean though, is that when the minimum wage does rise, that you actually uh, don't necessarily have to see as great a cost increase as you may otherwise believe. Let me also just say besides Costco, oh, just and, and along these lines you see for the first time in the last you know in the, 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 in the last 5 years we've seen more employers of voluntary pay standards Amazon Target at $15 Walmart at $11 the list goes on Clearly, they think that this is something that makes sense. And I think this is an interesting business perspective to keep in mind.
1: One final quick thing. One of the things unique about your studies is that you compared employment in counties that border state lines, where one state raised the minimum wage, the other did not, to see whether there was an effect. And was there?
2: Right. So- the, just to clarify, we want to compare really nearby places because really nearby places often are pretty similar. So it's kind of like a lab experiment where once you know as if you if you could just randomize uh, one which county gets a minimum wage, in reality, you can, but this is as close as you can approximate it. We tracked these counties for five, seven years after the increases. We looked at what happens to wages, turnover, employment, here's what we found. Wages rose very quickly and stayed higher. Employment did not budge at all in restaurants. And turnover fell, making these showing that these jobs became somewhat better. People stuck around long.
1: Aaron Dubey has done research for years on the minimum wage. She's at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Aaron, I thank you so much for spending the time. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. As we've covered on this program, the development of vaccines has been a remarkable success. What usually takes as much as four years was done in less than a year. But what we've also covered is that actually distributing the vaccines has been something of a mess, in many cases chaos, with state-to-state differences having people running across state lines or hanging out at hospitals and drug stores near the end of the day hoping to get some leftover vaccine. Texas actually fired a doctor who gave out vaccine that otherwise would have gone bad, telling him he should have let it be thrown out rather than give it to somebody outside the first group guidelines. How has this happened, and what can be done? Dr. Daniel J. Finkenstadt is an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Defense Management at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's also an Air Force major, is on the editorial board of the journal Logistics, and has spent his adult life in government acquisition and sourcing, in other words, working the global supply chain. I thank you for being here. We have had supply problems all through this thing, starting with the fact that, most of our nation's need before we even get to the vaccines for personal protective equipment had been outsourced to China.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Gil. It's um it it has been a challenge the entire time. Um it has not been for a lack of effort, I'll say that. Um but I, I think that there's just been years and years of outsourcing and a lack of centralized and transparent data um, to allow us to react um, to to these dilemmas and these emergencies when they when they crop up all at once like this. You
1: know, one of the things that I just thought when there was a shortage of vaccine at this period, besides the fact this is all new, they're still getting up to speed, was that there was a shortage of the vaccine itself. Then I find out, well... There's a shortage of vials. There's a shortage of rubber stoppers for the vials. It's beyond just vaccine.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's true the, the fill finish capacity at, at these facilities has is, is been a challenge. And a lot of folks in the supply chain have been saying that, especially people much smarter than I am in the healthcare supply chain, have been um, just sort of vocalizing that the entire time, which is as this comes up and as we ramp to this large capacity um, you know, you've got to be able to actually get this in the vials and get it out, and that requires an entire value chain that's, that's well behind the actual, um, the needle itself. And it's one of the things that me and my um, co-authors have, have been trying to push, even in the, in the phasing itself and the prioritization, which is, you know, if you, if you worry about vaccinating the frontline healthcare worker, that makes sense on its face. But you have to think about how you replenish the stock and how do you keep it coming. Um, And so I still have yet to see any discussion about how we're prioritizing the entire value chain up to the point of delivering the vaccine to the patient
1: yeah and especially that last mile delivery has been a problem in part because of the nature of these rna vaccines that need to be deep frozen getting them to rural areas native american reservations uh, and then there are some parts of the country a large part of the middle of the country where they just don't have the refrigeration capacity and in, in refrigerated warehouses to deal with this uh,
0: yeah absolutely you'll be um you know the the cold chain itself is is very very difficult, uh, especially with the Pfizer vaccine. It's it's very sensitive um, to to you know to movement in and out of the, the casing casing, uh, the way they carry it. There are novel solutions that are out there that just haven't been scaled. There's a firm, um, it's a it's a joint American German company out of uh, their American headquarters out of South Carolina, but they're called Mecotech. and they've presented um, these large sort of uh containers that can be transported directly from the factory you know uh, where the vaccines are made on the ships on the planes directly dropped in any area where they have a power source and it can hold up to like a million um, vials of this vaccine and keep it at deep frozen state the entire time but again it's a company that's a cryogenic company it's developed the ip and the design for it but they don't manufacture containers and so they have a supply chain issue just on putting that forward so you know, those are the types of investments that as the vaccines um, coming out you know we start to see which vaccine is going to be sort of our long-witted partner we might want to start making those investments now i had thought that maybe that wouldn't be as important as astrazeneca was coming online and, and maybe with the johnson and johnson um, where the the temperature is not as big of an issue but now with the mutated variants that are coming out um, you know moderna and pfizer are are still showing to be the most resilient to mutations So maybe cold chain is something we have to worry about for the long term, and we need to start making those investments now.
1: And let's talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you know, not in a disparaging way. In fact, it looks like the solution to a lot of things doesn't need to be deep frozen. It's a one-shot vaccine and all of that. But it is a different kind of vaccine, which calls for different distribution. So it's good news, but it adds complexity to a system that already seems to be too complex by half
0: yeah and it's it's very difficult and this gets to from the very beginning and it, this goes all the way back to what you were talking about with the ppe issues um <clears throat> ventilator issues all of that which is just just transparent data shared across the system and and it's difficult because you know we we had a paper come out in millbank uh, in 2020 where we called it you know um you know a new commons right this idea of there's this new tragedy of the commons that's occurring in, in this supply chain. And it's it's because everyone needs it at the same time. Um and you can't let market forces dictate who gets it because there are downstream effects that can impact um, the people who even who even receive it. So right now if you know if you think about it, if we hoard vaccines to ourselves and don't let it get to other parts of the world, well then those parts of the world will continue to spread and then and we'll just have to keep, you know, keep this going. And so there, there's this discussion on equity and not equity just from a pure human fairness standpoint, but like, what's the most equitable way to distribute it to reduce um, the spread itself as we go forward. And you add in the different types of of vaccines, you know, is it one dose? Is it two dose? What's the, the, uh, the way that we transport it, all of that needs, um, you know, uh, a centralized and an integrated data tracking system using something maybe like blockchain or other distributed ledger to where we can make sure that it's, it's being communicated across systems and it's an immutable uh, source of truth. Because if you look at the CDC site right now with the various systems that they have trying to track this, you introduce yet another type of vaccine with a single versus two dose regimen or, 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 or plan. And, and I just don't think that we've got the battle rhythm going to manage that because, you know, Operation Warp Speed is managing things at a federal level. But once it gets down to the jurisdiction, it's sort of the Wild West in terms of, you know, their choice of what they want to do.
1: Well, and let's talk about that, because data, when people are just saying, I I just want vaccine, when people are usually hearing from doctors, may sound kind of geeky. But uh, without the geeky, the vaccine doesn't get to you. So let's talk about that, because the process for sharing data about vaccine distribution was described uh, in one place as a convoluted Rube Goldberg machine. The CDC lists six different software systems that are being used to track vaccine distribution. The federal government tasked Deloitte with coming up with a software vaccine distribution system. It had so many gremlins in it that many states just went to their own system. So just knowing what's where has been a major problem.
0: It has, Bill. You know, I was actually looking at the VAM system, which is the one you're talking about that, that Deloitte developed. I think it was a $44 million price tag. And I think currently it's a, uh, Ten jurisdictions and a few agencies are the only ones that are actually using it because it's an opt-in system and it hasn't worked very well, um, but it's cost a lot of money. Um, There are other companies out there in the uh, distributed ledger space that have created um, vaccine passports that work off of just QR codes. So if you can imagine, you know, the vial gets scanned at the factory floor, it gets put on a pallet and that gets scanned, you know, into the truck. It gets transported to its storage location that gets scanned. It then gets scanned out. It gets to the hospital, it gets scanned out to the patient. And then the patient's on cell phone can scan and say, I received that dose. Why is that important? Um, all about allocation and distribution. So Dan Fingenstadt resides in Monterey, California right now. Dan Fingenstadt is a, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Clemson, South Carolina area. I get my first dose the state of California is allocating the second dose for me based off, you know, me being um, someone here in the zip code. If, if we're not tracking this across the system, if I have an emergency where I have to go visit family in South Carolina during my second dose window and get my second dose there, then my second dose allocation is coming to California. And, and they don't know why they have an extra allocation. And South Carolina is now down one allocation, and they don't know why they're down one allocation. And that may sound like not a big deal for one person, but you now multiply that by every instance across 350 million people, and it's a big deal.
1: We're talking to Dan Finkenstadt from the Graduate School of Defense Management at the Naval Postgraduate School, who's been making a study not only what has gone wrong with vaccine distribution, but what still can go wrong, including not being able to prevent against both theft of vaccine and And a black market of counterfeit vaccine, a problem so much a part of that world, it was the entire basis for the classic Orson Welles movie, The Third Man. That and more when we pick up this conversation in our next segment. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
0: Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
1: Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking to logistics expert Dan Finkenstadt from the Naval Graduate School of Defense Management about what's gone wrong with the distribution of the COVID vaccine and everything that has both gone wrong and could go wrong. This inability to track exactly what's going where and who has what makes me wonder whether you know we might see vaccines stolen. Whether there might be a black market for expired vaccine.
0: Yeah, absolutely, go. And if you if you look at what we discussed back in December when we were talking, uh, you know, my colleague Rod Hanfield from NC State and I, we we had our webinar on cold chain concerns and, and tracking and tracing that we've been talking about counterfeiting is a big deal and if you're not tracking even the vials that this material is coming in. It is very likely that someone will get a hold of this and start creating, you know, counterfeit product and you can't trace it um, back to, to prove that it came from Pfizer or Moderna, then you've got a major issue. Now, I don't doubt that the federal government portion of this that's managing it can, can verify that. But the problem is, is it's hitting the States, the jurisdictions, and then it's like, you know, again, it's uh, it, it's just sort of a you know individual choice of how those jurisdictions want to handle it in the states and then that's not even accounting for the fact that you know we have other populations like tribal populations that aren't you know put into the Indian you know into the Indian Health services IHs system so they're not tracking at all right um, and so there's no telling what can get spread there which again presents a problem because what we need right now, you know I think in the past I've seen reported something like, like a 40% declination rate on vaccines, right? It was going out, I know um, some colleagues in Ohio were telling me that the vaccine was going out to healthcare workers there, and they were seeing like a 40% declination rate within the first phase. So people who are educated within the health system saying, I'm not taking this vaccine, right? Because it's a voluntary basis. Well, you know, Stacey Woods and some folks at NC State have written about how this is a major marketing problem and that, you know, there's marketing things you have to consider. Well, to your point, Gil, as soon as counterfeit False vaccines that can harm you start hitting the news and in the system, that's only going to hurt that, that process of trying to, to convince people that it's worth taking. So it's, it's absolutely vital that there's a better tracking mechanism all the way, not just from the factor to the patient, but all the way through disposal to making sure that we're tracking when these vials are actually being tossed out and that they're not being thrown back into a counterfeit market.
1: Well, when we're talking about people declining to get the vaccine, let me talk to you uh, as a major. The rate is apparently stunningly high in the military as well.
0: I'm not privy to the the declination rate among the military. I will say that for myself here at the Naval Postgraduate School, the one thing that I saw that was a very promising, it seems very common sense, but I do know talking to other people, it's not being done elsewhere within other organizations is the, the Naval Postgraduate School very early on sent out a survey to all people here just saying, would you take the vaccine if it were given? Why might they do that? Because when they're requesting allocations on something that's as sensitive within the cold chain as a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, it is, in my opinion, it's um, irresponsible to just say, I have X number of members, and me X number times two vaccine. Because if you haven't just taken the simple step of asking when it's a voluntary, because it is still voluntary for the military, how many of you would take it? um, then, then you've got a problem there because let's say 60%, which is, you know, what, you know, so 60 to 70% is what people are reporting, you know, the national, uh, acceptance rate might be, or, or they have reported in the past. Let's say that's what it is. If I'm ordering hundred percent vaccines, that's probably irresponsible. What might be more responsible is to say, you know, um, if I have hundred percent people saying they'll take it, I'll order hundred percent. If I have below the 70% that we want for some sort of herd immunity, then I'll only order up to the seventy percent, and I'll, you know, I'll try to create an internal marketing campaign to get my people from whatever, you know, number they are below seventy percent to the seventy percent, you know, or maybe you just say we're only going to order the for those who've who've agreed to take it. Which both of those those second options I think are more responsible than just blindly ordering hundred percent for everyone. Which gets to your point about the incident in Texas where people are just tossing them out because not everyone's taking them.
1: Well, speaking of Texas, let's let's wrap up with this because uh, another segment of this broadcast this week is about the power failures in Texas. How does that add in with the needs of distribution and uh, the needs for trucks where there's already a shortage for truckers, but the need to keep the RNA vaccines in deep freeze? How much of a problem are power failures?
0: It's, it's a huge problem. You know, it's a huge problem at every level, because again, um, you know, the, the deal with cold chain is it's not about keeping things really cold because otherwise you'd be like, well, they've got a, they've got a freezing conditions. Things should be fine. Right. Um, No, it's actually uh, in the deep freeze. It's about controlling the temperature band. So you don't want excursions too cold, too hot. Um, You know, with power outages, you're definitely going to see them them getting too warm. Um, And, and with, the, the dry ice packing that, that they use, you can only take things in and out and repack them a couple of times before the excursion and the temperature, you know, uh, ruins the vaccine itself.
1: Daniel J. Finkenstadt is assistant professor in the Graduate School of Defense Management at the Naval Postgraduate School, obviously an expert in logistics who's been giving the story of vaccine distribution a lot of thought. I thank you so much for being with us this week. Thank you, sir. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Power grid problems are becoming big stories. In California in recent years, wildfires caused the problems and summer air conditioning demands led to rolling blackouts where everybody's power goes down here and there for a while to keep the system from collapsing. And now Texas is in the same boat and then some. But why? Texas set up their own closed grid so they could not get power from other states. That's one thing, but you've got millions of Texans who are without heat and without power for days, even burning their furniture to stay warm. This was not unpredicted. Ed Hers is an energy fellow and economics professor at the University of Houston who has been predicting this failure for some time. Ed, you co-wrote a piece for the Houston Chronicle eight years ago that said Texas suffers from Soviet-style electricity distribution system. What did you mean then, and how has it shown itself this past week?
4: The initial title was actually a lot shorter. It was ERCOT with the C replaced by a hammer and sickle, but the The editor thought that that would be too inflammatory. Um, So in the great rush to deregulate the uh, Texas electricity market, much like the California market had been deregulated before, the legislature and Governor Bush and Governor Perry actually created an old-style Soviet bureau um, whereby there was one purchaser for electricity in the Texas market, that purchaser is ERCOT, who acts as the market uh, clearing agent uh, for consumers on one side and generators on the other. Um, as a result, uh, the the situation is, is such that the generators began competing uh, hammer, tong, tooth, and nail against each other to bid into the market on a day ahead basis and during a real-time basis. So that over the last 10 years, um, while there's been uh, a few upsets in terms of tight supplies, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute, uh, generators on average receive less than it costs them to provide electricity to the grid.
1: And that's going to be a problem for several reasons. I imagine one that has shown itself this week is that there is very little ability to spend for things that aren't immediate, such as weatherizing your system to protect against the cold.
4: That's absolutely right. And so there, there's actually a perverse incentive for the market here, Gil. So if we plan for a peak of, say, 75 gigawatts in uh, August, you know, the hottest days and and. Uh, um, You know, and and for perspective, the California market peak is about 45 gigawatts. Um, So so Texas is significantly larger. But across the rest of the year, the average demand is only about 45 gigawatts. So uh, we wind up with a bunch of generators ready to go in August and September, and then they kind of button up the doors after September because they're not going to be needed the rest of the year when it's, you know, relatively temperate. Um, uh, they don't really have an incentive to winterize or get ready because they only earn revenues when they're actually um, turning and putting electrons into the, the market. Uh, for comparison, uh, PJM, uh, where we are in Washington, uh, there's a capacity market. And so generators are actually paid to be on standby, ready to go um, throughout the... the uh, the year, and you know, there there typically less issues dialing those guys up. You know, we had this problem in 2011 in Texas, uh, a, a cold snap in February. It, um, in in fact, almost 10 years ago to the week, and uh, there were blackouts in critical infrastructure areas, including the you know, the Dallas Medical Center.
1: One of the things that people are worried about right now is and it seems very strange to think global warming causes a place to get colder but uh it's one of those you know misunderstood uh things you had to put it very you know quickly you had warm air over the arctic um, up in the upper atmosphere that took that very tight um arctic vortex that usually just kind of spins around the top of the planet and made it unstable and brought it down and had it spread out over the united states Uh, this happens every once in a while anyway but it's apparently something that is going to get worse and happen more frequently and with the lack of weatherization of the equipment in texas and other places in the united states where generally it's warmer one wonders if this is going to be a continuing problem over the years, whether the money is just going to have to be spent to make sure these natural gas lines don't uh, freeze, that equipment doesn't you know ice up um, and and the and the wind turbines you know have deicer as they do in the Dakotas and Alaska and other places. So is this something Texas is just going to have to invest in?
4: Well, yes, if they want to have a reliable grid, they're, they're going to have to do it. You know, this is going to take some sort of, of political integrity and, and leadership. And and this is not red versus blue. You know, electrons don't know what color uh, they are. Um, and it's not green versus brown. It's providing electricity to uh, the consumer. Uh you know, we use we use the electricity for everything. The value of the, the electricity is not what it costs in a wholesale market to produce. The value of the electricity is in what it allows us to do.
3: You
1: referred to ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which is supposed to be the central point of, of knowing what's going on and controlling it, as being a Soviet-style agency. Governor Abbott said this past week they haven't even been able to tell him who has power and who doesn't. Um, who is ERCOT accountable
4: to? Uh, no one. Really? It's that short an answer. It's a, it's an independent consortium, you know, supposedly under the uh, aegis of the Public Utility Commission of Texas. But uh, ERCOT essentially functions as an independent organization. It's a, it's a nonprofit, which of course, as a nonprofit, takes hundreds of millions of dollars of fees every year to, to operate the grid. Um, there's, there's no accountability. I think, you know, recent press reports have pointed out that a number of the board members of ERCOT don't live in the state of Texas. Um, the, uh, the public utility commission is, is, you know, it really doesn't have a whole bunch of independence. I think, I think the governor appointed the, uh, a spokesperson from ERCOT to the public utility commission, uh, You know, it's uh, uh, a situation where for more than 10 years, um, every incumbent in Austin knew that they were going to have to do something. Um, But it it seems to be one of the immutable laws of politics that if the price of electricity goes up at the meter or the price of gasoline goes up at the pump, no one gets reelected. And we, we learned that lesson severely in the 70s. Um, I was there uh, uh, and Governor Gray Davis certainly learned that lesson during the 2000-2001 debacle in the California electricity market.
1: Ed Harris is an energy fellow and economics professor at the University of Houston who has been writing about this for some time. Ed, thank you so much for joining us.
4: It's my pleasure.
1: You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The United States is once again on Mars. From CBS This Morning, here's Anthony Mason.
3: NASA is celebrating the picture-perfect landing of its Perseverance rover on Mars. Perseverance is the space agency's fifth rover to reach the surface of the red planet and by far the most ambitious. Carter Evans followed it all at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California everything worked the heat shield the parachute and the rocket powered sky crane that lowered perseverance down to its new home
4: touchdown confirmed yes. perseverance safely yes. on the surface of mars
3: minutes after landing the rover beamed back proof of life two black and white photos from the red planet what was it like seeing those pictures it was amazing while he was speaking to us nasa's acting administrator steve jersey got a call from his boss hello mr president who watched the landing at the white house his first words were congratulations man so you know (laughs) that's the president right and so he was as psyched as i am perseverance is the largest and most advanced rover ever built it's jam-packed with instruments and experiments like ingenuity A four-pound helicopter that could prove it's possible to fly on another planet. But the main goal of this $2.4 billion mission is to collect samples that could contain evidence of past life. If this finds proof of life, uh, everybody will say it's a great investment. Thomas Serbukin oversees NASA's science missions. They're all expensive missions. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of people that would say, I wish we didn't do that. It changed not only what we know, but how we think about ourselves. And for me, that's ultimately what research is about. But this research will require patience. To answer the question of past life on Mars, these samples first have to get back to Earth. That will take two more expensive missions and at least a decade.
4: Congratulations, believe it or not.
3: We have a job to do now. (laughs) For CBS This Morning, Carter Evans, Pasadena, California.
1: Now, days before, both China and the United Arab Emirates got to Mars, though the UAE orbiter will stay up in the Martian atmosphere. And this isn't just about colonizing the red planet, as fans of the Expanse are waiting for, but to see what happened to Mars. It had an atmosphere capable of sustaining elementary life, which may be weird enough that its traces will be hard to recognize previous missions revealed that the martian atmosphere was stripped away by solar wind and radiation billions of years ago mars was more like earth as the planet dried up any life would have gone underground and that's one of the things perseverance will be after also to discover more of what happened to mars inner core ours is molten and convecting and provides the magnetic field that protects our atmosphere from being scraped away by solar winds the inner core of mars froze up and its magnetic field was lost its One of the reasons we're here and Martians rest in the stories of Ray Bradbury. But discovering what happened there can give us warnings of what could happen here. And a heads up for when it will be time to hop on the Enterprise or the Rocinante or the Battleship Galactica and get out of Dodge. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Woody
2: Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.